Good morning. It is really, really nice to see all of y'all. My name is Allie Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to start off this morning by asking kind of an intense question. So just bear, bear, bear with me in my existentialism this week. So the question that was on my mind a lot this week is, do you ever, like, wonder what we're doing here? Like, not on earth, in church, all right? What are we doing here at church? Like, why? Why do we come together on Sundays? Why do we make the effort to be here? I kept thinking of all the reasons that people have told me they come to church sometimes, and I was thinking of people who tell me, well, I just love listening to, like, an inspiring message. It makes me feel good about the week ahead. I love hearing that. And the first thought that uh, jumped to my mind was, like, you must not have heard of podcast or YouTube or TED Talks. I was like, look, we live in the age of Brene Brown and Oprah and Tony Robbins. Like, no offense, but Stephen and I are not them, right? So if you wanted an inspiring message, like, why here? And then I thought about people who tell me that they come to church because of the relationships. They love meeting new people or finding community in some way. And then I thought about that, and I thought, well, Honestly, like, there are a lot more convenient places to meet people, like, through your schools, even your gyms. Like, so many institutions and organizations have gotten so good at making community and forming relationships. There's lots of places to find relationships. So why church? Why here? Why does it matter? And I promise, I'm not trying to sell you out of the idea of church, I promise. I promise, I promise, I'm not going there. But it's something I think about all the time, not surprisingly. I'm, I'm genuinely asking the question, what is church and why do we do this? As I was thinking about this question, really all summer, because if anything, COVID prompted us as leaders and as the people who are leading this church to start to think about that question more deeply, we started wondering where could we look to get that answer. And, and a fellow pastor of ours, um, an older pastor, kind of pointed us to the book of Acts. And inside baseball, that's why we chose Acts for this sermon series all this fall, hoping that it could teach us a little bit more about what the church is and why we do this and why it matters. And that's where we've been all fall. Every sermon we've been talking about how this is not a history book, how the book of Acts is teaching us something about how to be the church today. So we've talked through a lot of stories, and each of them is pointing us to some truth about what it means to be the church. Whether we talked about Pentecost and this crazy event where the Holy Spirit came and we talk about, okay, we need to recognize the Holy Spirit in our lives. Or we talk about Philip and the Ethiopian and how to extend invitations to other people or Stephen and how to witness to other people. Each of these stories point us back to this lesson about how to be the church here. And so today, we're going to dig into one more story. One more story in Acts that we hope will point us to some version of the answer of why do we do what we do. Now, some of you listened uh, to the homework, and I can tell who you are because you brought your Bibles. You read the email, so thank you. You brought your Bibles. Y'all know I'm preaching. That means I'm going to make you take out your phone. So break open your Bible. Break out your phone. If you don't have a Bible, I put some in the back tables. Y'all can just pretend you're getting coffee or something, and you can go grab one. There's some on the coffee tables in there, and you can grab your Bible 
And we are going, I'm going to hold off. You're going to open it. I mean, spoiler alert, we're doing Acts. I thought it shouldn't be a surprise, all right? So you're going to open it to Acts, but we'll pause for a second before I tell you what passage we're doing, okay? Because one of the questions I get the most often is, great, here's the Bible. Like, what do I do with it? How do I study it? And so I'm going to give you a cheat sheet and, like, keep this because this is how you study the Bible. There are three steps, in my opinion, and I'm not the only one, who thinks that you need to study the Bible. The first one is comprehension. What does it say? You're literally trying to understand the literal meaning. And y'all, this is the one we skip the most. We skip step one, and we don't understand what's going on. And then we're surprised when we get to step three, and you're like, what am I supposed to get out of this? Well, you haven't done step one. You need to know what it says first. Then there's step two. What does it mean? Interpretation. And then finally, there's step three, and this is what we try to jump to, which is the application piece. How does this change me? Right? And usually when we approach the Bible, that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to say, like, okay, like, how do I suck all this information out of the Bible and apply it to my own life? And those are fair questions. But I would argue that they don't matter unless you prioritize those first two steps. Okay? So what we're going to do together today is walk through those steps. You can see a little bit more about what I mean. All right? But before I begin any Bible study of any sort, there are two questions I always ask because I think these are helpful for all three questions. What is the context of this book? And what is the context of the passage, passage that I'm trying to read in this book? So context of the book Sometimes that can mean, like, what is the history around it or social stuff. But there's also, like, two basic questions that you need to know. You need to know who wrote it and why. Who wrote the book and why did they write it? And luckily, guys, in the Bible, most authors tell you why in the first few sentences. So it's not that hard. All right? So who wrote Acts? Pop quiz, go. Who wrote Acts? Luke. Praise the Lord. Luke. What other book did he write in the Bible? Oh, praise the Lord. There you go. All right. So Luke was a disciple of Jesus. He did not live when Jesus lived. He wrote it later. He was commissioned to write two books. All right. Two scrolls. One scroll was Luke, aptly named, that tells the story of Jesus. And then the second book is Acts. So sometimes people refer to them as Luke Acts because it's really one long story that he separated into two scrolls. Now, the second question is why he wrote it. So I want you to turn to Acts 1. Just that, literally that first, first line. All right, someone read it to me because I'm slower in my Bible today. What is Acts 1, verse 1? I'm going to make you read it. Y'all thought you were coming for a sermon. All right, I'll read it then. Ready? In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, that's it. In the first book, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning. So why is he writing this book? He's just trying to tell us the story of Jesus. He's giving us a narrative. He's trying to explain and write down and record everything that happened to Jesus, and that's what he did in Luke. And then he starts off Acts by continuing the story. So this is just the second part of what he assumes he wrote in the first book of Luke. Now let's get to that second question. What is the context of this passage? What I mean is in the book, where is this passage located? Like what happens before it is usually what I mean. 
All right? So we are reading Acts chapter 9, part of it today. So we need to look at, okay, what happened before Acts chapter 9. And we've got, if you've been here, then we know, because we've gone through each of these. If you're in your Bible reading plan, you're actually way past Acts 9. You're on Acts 15, so you know more. But this is generally the timeline of Acts before we get to Acts 9. So we start with Pentecost. And we start with this major event in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus' disciples. And then they go out and preach the word of of Jesus, preach, preach the gospel. And then we get into this whole explanation of early churches and what they looked like. And these little communities, they weren't called churches, but little groups of Christians and what they did in their homes and how they worshiped together. And then we get a series of stories through Acts 4 through 7 where we start to notice that something isn't quite right. Other people, mainly religious authorities, are not so thrilled with this Jesus movement. And so they start persecutions. And it kind of culminates in this act where Stephen gets martyred or stoned. And it's a story, kind of this emblematic story of what the Christians were facing. And it was the first time someone was killed for the Christian faith. And then we move on to Philip. And Philip was a story that we covered last week where Philip is, here's the Holy Spirit telling him to stand next to a chariot that has an Ethiopian uh, eunuch in it. And he goes next to the chariot and explains the scriptures to this Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian then believes him. And what does the Ethiopian do? But he goes out back home and starts to preach the message in his home of Ethiopia. And the gospel is spreading. So we see this all leading up to what we're about to talk about here. So we have some idea that there already have been persecutions, that maybe these are ongoing, and yet the gospel is spreading. And that's where Luke is in this narrative that he's telling, okay? So we are going to start reading at Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to start with this comprehension level, okay? We're also, we're going to read this three times, guys, because I think you should read each passage three times that you're really trying to understand at the least. So we're going to start with this first reading, all right? And I'm going to pause along the way explaining a little bit of how I start to understand what it's saying. These, it's not magical. Most of this I Googled. Some of them I have fancy seminary books, but most of it is Googleable, all right? So let's start with verse 1. Are you going to be nice enough to follow along with me, Ian? Thank you. So those of you who are, who, yeah, whatever. If y'all want to look up there, you can. Just read along with me. I'm going to read here. Okay, ready? Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, let's stop there. So unless... You are an ancient, an expert in ancient near Middle East uh, religion, then you have no idea what's happening when he's talking about letters to the synagogue, right? And so you need to pause there because you don't understand what's going on. And that's okay, you're not supposed to. You don't need a degree in history to be able to read this. But you can look up other sources to help you understand okay, I don't understand what he's saying. Why did he need letters from the synagogue? So let's back up and let's pause right here and I'll be your resource for today. So Saul, first of all, notice how that name is mentioned really casually in that first verse, like Saul, as if we should know who he is, right? And it's because if you look back at the, um, when Stephen is stoned, Acts 7, at the very bottom of that, it says, and there was a young man named Saul who stood and gathered all the coats of those who were witnessing against Stephen. 
So Luke has already included him in the narrative before, and we already know he's a bad guy. That's what we know. We know he's an enemy of the Christians. And so when we get to Acts 9, we have a little better sense of Saul is. But also, the people who are reading this, y'all know Saul becomes, again, spoiler alert, who does he become? What name do we know him? Paul, right? So we know him as Paul. So everyone who was reading this knew who Saul was. They had background knowledge when they were hearing this. And so when they hear the word Saul, they're thinking of who they know as Paul. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek. So when he writes his name, he writes it Paul in the letters that we have, which is why we call him Paul. But it's the same name. Okay? So Saul was a guy from Tarsus, a town in Turkey. And he was a religious guy. He had been raised Jewish, and he had been raised to love God's law So much so that his parents sent him all the way to Jerusalem to study under a rabbi there. And he was going to study to become one of the religious elite. Sometimes we call those religious elites Pharisees. What that means is they were in charge of making sure that the community was following God's law. And they did it most of the time with really good intent. Sometimes Pharisees get bad raps because Jesus called them out a lot for their flaws. But overall, a lot of the hearts of Pharisees were about maintaining God's law so that it would protect the community. And you can imagine that Saul, think about it, he was studying, he had like was new out of this religious school, and there came this rumor that there was this kind of sect of Judaism that was starting to teach that the Messiah had already come. And they were worshiping that Messiah. They weren't worshiping God. And you can imagine to Saul, he's like, ha, we've been here before. We've worshiped false idols and gods before. And what happened when we did? All of Israel fell apart. We can't do that again. I have to stop this. He really believed, or I believe when I read this, that Saul really did believe that he was following God's law. He thought he was protecting the Jews, keeping them safe by arresting those who were leading people astray. And so it came that he had to get letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to go arrest those in other cities. And so he chooses Damascus, the city to the north, to go arrest people there. Right? And so he gets those letters kind of authorizing him. I think one of the other things in here that's interesting is that they call uh, Christianity the way. It did not have a name yet, and so it was just called the way. And I I could preach a whole sermon on what it means to be the way. Like, what does that mean that we're following a way? What does it mean that Paul is on the way to Damascus when this happens to him? Just hold off on that. I'll preach that later. All right? So then let's jump down to verse 3, okay? During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with them stood speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. So then when you're on this comprehension level, when you're trying just to figure out what it says, the thing you should be asking, is there anything that's confusing in this to me? Anything that doesn't make sense on the literal level? 
And the couple things that I could pick out is A, that Jesus refers to Saul, says, are you harassing me? But, I mean, the, Paul, Paul and Saul, Saul's harassing the followers of Jesus, not Jesus. How interesting that word choice, are you harassing me? I would circle that if I were reading this the first time and just put a little question mark about it and think about whether, what that could mean later. And then the next thing that I found confusing is who are you, Lord? In our Bibles, that's capitalized. Lord just meant sir, really, in, in ancient times, okay? So it wasn't that he was recognizing Jesus. He didn't recognize Jesus at Lord as Lord the first time. But he did recognize there was something talking to him. And then, of course, you get really straightforward explanation that he gets speechless, he becomes blind, he fasts, neither ate nor drank. We just read another um, verse from Acts where they fasted, right? Fasting was a practice when something crazy happened to you and you wanted to experience or see God again. You felt like you needed to fast. That was an Old Testament custom. And so it makes total sense in his day and age why he would assume that after he'd been blinded, he would need to... Uh, fast, neither eat nor drink. Okay, let's continue with this first reading. In Damascus, verse 10, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias, he answered, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. And I gotta love, I love, every time I read this, I'm like, Thank you, Google Maps God. That's like, go on straight street. I'm going to be very specific. I love that. I love that that's what we can expect out of God. All right, start on verse 12. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. People say he has done horrible things to your people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. The Lord replied, go. This man is the agent. I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Okay. So after we finish our first reading, theoretically, you should be able to complete some version of a pop quiz. Right? If I asked you, I'm not going to do it, don't worry. Kind of. I'll do it a little bit, but like you should be able to answer some really basic questions that were literally answered in the text. So, for example, why was Saul going to Damascus? Persecute or arrest is what it says, right? To arrest, get letters, and to arrest Christians. What's the disciple's name that God uses to, halt, to heal Saul? Ananias. Those basic things, names, places, that's what we want to grasp and the action that's happening on our comprehension level, okay? The next one we're going to move through is interpretation, okay? And this is what does it mean? And let me be very clear. Meaning is determined by the author, not you. Meaning is determined by the author and discovered by the reader. It's determined by the author and discovered by the reader, which means it's really important that we try to get in the author's head. That's why we care so much about the context stuff and who Luke was and what the history was because we need to get in the head of whoever the author is. And so we're asking those questions. Okay, he's trying to tell us the story about Jesus' movement and what's happening and the way, and he's trying to illustrate this. 
He's writing in the first, second century, like how do we piece this together? And that's what we're trying to gather. What was his meaning? What was Luke's meaning while he's trying to write this? Most of the time, the way you can answer that is by, okay, so they were writing this with the mind of those scholars or those stories that they had heard before. So most of the time you can interpret meaning by looking at cross-references. What that means is finding other places that some of these metaphors or images are used in the Bible. And that's how we can piece together what he's trying to mean. We're going to read this one more time. I'm going to highlight two things that I think are important for us to understand meaning. Okay? So we're going to start from the beginning. And y'all will be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I really think reading these words out loud over and over again is one of the ways that we study the Bible. So let's start with verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Okay, let's stop there. Okay, so what's... Every word is important in the Bible, not just because it's holy, but because the writers really had to choose which words they were writing when they were going to put it down on a scroll. And he wastes one word by having Jesus call out his name twice, okay? So we need to think about, well, where else in the Bible is a name called out twice? Turns out a lot, but there's one in particular that I want to think about. It involves a light. It involves a disembodied voice calling out of something, and saying a name twice. Anyone remember what that is? It's, it's a light of fire that doesn't burn anything up. It involves shrubbery. <laughs> Moses, right? That is actually how that story starts. Moses, Moses, right? And so this n double name is really important, and we're supposed to be thinking about Moses. And what happens with Moses? He gets called out of something that he's in into a new position that he is supposed to be in. And so the author is trying to tell us, look, this guy Saul, Jesus is not converting him. He is calling him out of some position that he's in into something new. You need to be thinking about all those call stories, and there's a lot. Jesus does, it, Jesus does it with Mary and Martha. He calls Martha, Martha, trying to call her out of the position and unbelief that she had been in into a new position. He does that with Peter, trying to call him out of a position that he'd been in into something new where they could be leaders of the church. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 5, Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you were harassing, came in reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but no one saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes but couldn't see. So they led them by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he neither ate nor drank anything. Let's talk about that blindness for a second, because that's the next thing that I pick up. I'm like, okay, where is blindness in the Bible? Also, it turns out a lot, but I'm trying to narrow it down, and I think, okay, where has Luke written about blindness before? Where, what does blindness mean to Luke? Every gospel has kind of a mission statement that Jesus says at the beginning that tells us what his mission was. And in Luke, it's not an exception. So if you go to Acts 4, 
Jesus says basically like what he's trying to do. If you're ever confused about what Jesus is trying to do, there's a mission statement for each one of these. And if you go to Acts 4, oh, no, I don't, can't find it. Oh, because it's Luke 4, guys. That's why. Okay, so if you go to Luke 4, and we're going to verse 18. So Jesus is in the temple, and he rolls up a scroll, and he's reading something. This is Jesus' mission statement. This is what Luke believes Jesus is here doing. He's quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of Lord's favor. For Luke, blindness is not just physical blindness. There's something spiritual about it. And you see this again and again in Luke. There are times when Jesus heals blind people, and the language around what it is is like, you can see your faith has made you well. You have gone from a place of unbelief into a place of belief. Your eyes have been renewed or restored. Blindness is an analogy of sorts, a believing that someone who was once blind, who stood in a place of unbelief, God works in their lives to bring them to a place of belief. And how many days was he blind? And what else happened in three days? Jesus' death and resurrection, right? We come from death to new life in the course of three days. We come from a place of unbelief to a place of belief in three days. It wasn't just that Saul or Paul was blind. It was that he himself was going through a transformation that maybe we ourselves are called to. Now, I'm going to leave the rest of that reading for now because we're going to move on to this last question, application. And again, this is what we all want to get out of the Bible when we're reading the Bible, is how can this change me? What am I supposed to get out of this? And look, guys, you can get a million things out of this. We could talk about Ananias and how he was obedient. We can talk about the experience of being blind and what that meant for Paul. We could map that onto our lives and think about where is God calling us. We could do a lot of things about how does this change me. Ultimately, it's reliant on the Holy Spirit in your own lives. But today... I'm going to speak a little bit, because that's what we do as preachers, is try to guide us to where we feel the Holy Spirit is leading us in this passage. And there's one word that stood out to me, and it's a Greek word, and it it means it happened. It's a version of the verb happened. But Luke uses it really interestingly. He always uses it right before some type of miracle. So it's not in our translations at all. Actually, if it were in our translations, it would be in that verse 3, where it says, during the journey as he approached approached Damascus. It should say, during the journey as he approached Damascus, it happened. Suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. There should be an extra verb in there, but there's not, because translations decide to omit those things. But then if you dig a little bit deeper into this passage, you don't have to know the Greek. There... There is a word, and it, it's so interesting because Luke uses this word all the time to kind of dictate when things are moving from an ordinary place to an extraordinary place. If you think about the beginning of Luke, you know, 
There's that famous like King James version uh, way of talking about the birth of Jesus. And it starts, in those days, Caesar Augustus should be enrolled, blah, 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 blah. But that idea of in those days, or and it came to be that Mary was with child, all those phrases indicate is this verb, it happened. But that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me about this passage, how this is supposed to change me, and I mean me, not just you guys, me, in this passage, is that that verb, it happens 80 plus times in Luke and 69 times in Acts. And that matters because what it means to us is that act of moving from ordinary to extraordinary, it was normal. It was accepted. When I look at, okay, what am I supposed to understand about Ananias and Paul and this passage? What am I supposed to grasp? The thing that hits me is that they didn't think any of this was weird. They didn't think it was crazy that he got blinded on the road. Ananias kind of protests and says, yeah, but isn't he the guy who's, who killed people? And God says, no, just go. And he goes. It's kind of nuts that they had an expectation for the extraordinary all the time, all the time. And so what are we supposed to learn about what the church is? There's a lot of things we can learn. But when I'm reading this passage, one of the things that hits me is like, my level of expectation to see God working in the world and in me and around people is not that high. That little phrase, it happened, doesn't occur in my life all the time. I'm not sitting there thinking, yes, this is God all the time, partially because I think people would think I was crazy. But that's not an issue for these disciples. They believe fiercely that God is working in the world. They believe that they just have new eyes to see the world and to see Jesus working in their life. And Paul gets those eyes. He's able then to go on and expect that Jesus is just with him all the time. You see, what's so interesting in Acts is we think about the beginning of Acts, Jesus goes up to heaven and we don't expect to see him anymore. But he's there all the time. In visions, he comes to people a lot through prayers. He's telling people what to do. And I guess my question to us is like, why do we think that's supposed to be different today? Why do we think, why do we have this deep doubt, this unbelief that God is not, in fact, with us? What if one of the ways that where to become a church is to live with the constant expectation that God is actually with us. My prayer for us is something along the lines of I hope we go blind. I hope that we enter into a place where we can no longer see so that God can give us the eyes to notice what he's doing. Because I know there are things in your lives, because I hear about them, that you name as ironic or coincidences, or you don't celebrate enough because you're kind of scared of what that would mean to celebrate it. Like when you're going through IVF and you finally get a positive pregnancy test, 
or when someone in your life finally goes to rehab or when you leave a hard marriage, those are miracles. And it does not hurt us to name them as such. Can I tell you a crazy story as I close up? Today I woke up, and I'm a little nervous. I think you're going to think I'm crazy, but just bear with it. So I woke up this morning, and I got here, and I was so annoyed because my contacts, something's wrong with my contacts. And I sat down there, and I was like, I can't see, I can't see that right now. And I got back there, and I started flipping and, like, preparing these notes. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't see. And look, part of me wants to rationalize that away and say, yeah, 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 I just put in my contacts in the wrong eyes today. But what is at risk if I don't just embrace it and say, it could be God? What is at risk for me if I don't jump into that belief and say, okay, God, you're here. What do you want me to do with it? Look, I'm not saying there's a reason for everything in your life. I don't believe in that. But I do believe on the spectrum of miracles and believing in them and just justifying everything away. We're here. And if there's anything that we can learn from the early church is that in order to be the church, in order to change the world, in order to have the energy and the vitality that the early disciples had, we have to be here. So I'm going to pray for us in a second. I'm going to pray for us to start to see things differently, to start to shift our vision and to start to name it to other people and believe fully that the truth of Jesus, what he means for us, is Emmanuel, that God is with us. Let us pray. Lord of miracles and of all good things, open up our eyes and give us a new vision, a vision that includes the expectation that you are with us always. Lord, we want to be believers, but we need your help. Teach us how. Be with us here. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.